Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts, a podcast from the New Books Network. My name is Andy Boyd. I'm talking today with philosopher Simon Critchley about his book, Tragedy, the Greeks, and Us. Professor Critchley, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Andy. So let's start with the big question. Why does tragedy still speak to us today? Hmm. Um, well, <laughs> how do I begin? Um, it does because it does, I suppose. It, it does because it does. It's the, the world that tragedy, ancient tragedy and Elizabethan tragedy and more recent ones speak out of is still legible to us. It's still it makes sense to us. It has power over the way we think about things. Why that's the case is, in a way, is hard to understand. I don't. I'm not being evasive by that. I mean, the, sure. The um, you know, there are people that like to read the Old Testament. Um, I don't know that many of them, and there are some people that get you know excited by the Epic of Gilgamesh. Um, it has its virtues, but I don't think any of those. Um, text is is you know legible and then performable in the way that um the classical tragedy is or more recent tragedies are so it's there's something going on in tragedy isn't it to make it relevant it just it still speaks to who we are uh, because we're not that different Right, right. Yeah, this was something of a problem for Marx, I think, you know, the idea of why do these plays from 2000 years ago speak to us so well, uh, if the material conditions of our society is so different. But I think part of what you're suggesting in this that's book is maybe... That's why we shouldn't show another reason for not following Marx on <laughs> any number of things. I mean, you know, material conditions explain their, their partial explanatory factors of human situations, but um, they're not determining factors uh, apart from in the minds of academic Marxists, of which there are legion numbers in the world. And so, so in a sense, the way um, classical tragedy, say, ancient tragedy, you know, it, or, I mean, it, um, it's Marx, it's in the introduction to the Grundrisse, isn't it, which talks about that. It shouldn't make sense to us, uh, but it does. And that's because it's great. And they were the kind of the, the infants, uh, the infancy of humankind. Uh, Utter nonsense, uh, Mark spouts when it comes to uh, to art, but that's by the by. Well, <laughs> I, I think that's an interesting question, though, because one of the things you seem to be arguing in your book is that uh, the the sort of ancientness of ancient tragedy has been overstated in a way, right? That it's not this yes. sort of ritualistic, uh, you know, kind of pre-modern thing, but that it's actually. You know, it's 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 the deliberation of a city trying to figure out very complicated ethical questions, right? Not necessarily trying to figure out ethical questions. Not it's not that's not clear. Um, it's um, there was there were performances of, of plays in festivals. We uh, we know we know that um, we don't know what they were for, whether they had any kind of moral purpose at all. In many ways, it's um, I'm skeptical about that um we we the fact that we desperately want to find a moral purpose in in theater says more about um our deficiencies rather than uh what the greeks were up to say and 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 tragedy is modern in its context it's it's modern it's it's an invention um theater was an invention it wasn't i mean again some people like to think of um another if you can be you know, Marx can give you all sorts of delusions. Nietzsche can give you other kinds of delusions that tragedy has its origin in Dionysian ritual. Um, it doesn't. There's no evidence for that. It's it's something which is, uh, it's a form, theatre, where elements from the past, stories from the past, not always. There are actually historical events too. The oldest play we have, 472, uh, Aeschylus's Persians, deals with, a recent historical event, but often stories from the past are being presented through a new technology, a new format uh, in the form of theatre. So tragedy is an invention. I think that's the key thing to, uh, which is not, so it's not some kind of ritualized performance and to understand tragedy as ritual is to kind of deliberately misunderstand it. 
Uh, although that, that's, that was a fashionable approach about a century ago. One of the other philosophers that you kind of take issue with is Aristotle. And yes. you seem to be a bit annoyed with Aristotle and his kind of smug oh, yeah. self-certainty. So what exactly is it that kind of you, you recoil at in, uh, in the poetics? You know, oh gosh. Well, I mean, I, when I, you know, I'm, uh, this book, Tragedy, the Greeks and Us, is, um, it's an attempt to make the, the statement that if we want to understand ourselves um, and understand, uh, ourselves, understand ourselves better and where we are, we have to go back to, to theatre, to uh, the stage of our, of our lives. And that's what happens in, in comedy and in satire plays, but really powerfully in tragedy. And we have 31 of them. Uh, in ancient Greek, and um, and we understand those plays uh, through different lenses, uh, which we could talk about. But the main uh, framing device that's often been used in the history of the understanding of theatre is um, is Aristotle's Poetics, and it's somehow imagined that um, Aristotle was right about what he was he was up to and that he was um, and it's, it's plausible and we know what it means and things like that. And I, I try and um, show in a really kind of long discussion of Aristotle, which was really hard to, to write. It really was a lot of sweat trying to show how plays themselves, um, tragedies themselves um, function as a kind of pre buttle of what Aristotle was up to. Uh, they kind of um, they're more more excessive, more more extreme, wilder, more interesting than the kind of slightly domesticated saccharine stuff that Aristotle was talking about. And you can I mean, one way of thinking about that would be around the issue of catharsis. People love the idea of catharsis. They think they know what it means. Um, it's really not clear what it means in the poetics. And it's not clear what its relationship to theatre is. And um, you pull that little plank away, then all sorts of interesting stuff happens. Yeah, that does seem to be pretty central to most people's understanding of Aristotle, is the idea that there's some kind of a, you know, a sense of, is it a purgation? Is it a sort of release? It's, it's completely unclear what that's supposed to mean, right? Yes. I mean, the word, I mean, the word is used in uh, mainly in, you know, it's used once in the, the poetics, it's not explained. Um, it's used in the politics with a reference to a lost poetical work. And then the other times it's used, and I catalogue these in the, in the book, is in relationship to biological functions like going to the toilet or menstruation in the case of women. It's a kind of catharsis is a kind of discharge and um, a discharge. And, and if you think about it in those terms, which for some reason we find repellent, then, um, you know, things begin to change. It's not as if we, um, because linked to the idea of catharsis is the idea of, um, well, maybe two ideas, the idea of us kind of identifying with uh, a work of theatre. Again, there's no reason to believe any of that in relation to any of the ancient plays or indeed Shakespearean plays. And the idea that they're to do with education Right? They're to do with the education of citizens and things like that. Again, there's no, no evidence at all that that's, uh, that's in play. In, um, so, and then you, so you begin to prod at these, these, these concepts that are dear to us. And it's not just that catharsis is something which is fond, uh, people that read Aristotle are fond of. It's something which people talk about all the time in relationship to, um, you know, ordinary experiences of art. You know, they'll, uh, go and see a movie and if you ask them what do you think of a movie well I felt kind of you know there was a catharsis in it um, mm -hmm. which usually means some kind of you know whatever purification elevation education all of that and um, I'm not saying that that's wrong but what's going on in theatre in, and particularly in ancient theatre is just much more devastating and much more profound than that and that's something we can begin to get close to if we can push Aristotle 
read him is important, but push him outside, push him to one side a little bit as well. Mm-hmm. That phrase more devastating that you use, I believe that's from Ann Carson, right? Yes. What yes. have you learned? She's obviously an, you know, an amazing poet and translator of, of these uh, Greek plays. Mm-hmm. What have you learned from her work and how has her work helped you in writing this book and in thinking about tragedy more generally? Well, she, yeah, she's um, been very helpful. Um, and I mean, there's a kind of maybe a story connected with that, which would be, um, so for example, um, she translated the Antigone um, of Sophocles. And um, what she sought to do in the translation uh, was to strip Antigone of the usual uh, forms of identification, forms of um, emotion, which we associate with it. The way the play is often read is in terms of, here is a, you know, a young woman who's being brutalized by the forces of the state it's what in the way Brecht uh, rewrites the play and, um, and so on and so forth. She tries to strip <clears throat> all of that away and to leave us with a kind of cold, the cold presentation of the, the drama itself. And she, um, and it's an incredibly powerful translation, I think, because we look at the, we look at plays and we look at these plays with a cold, pensive distance. We're watching people's lives being torn to, to pieces, being devastated, and we look. Uh, we don't have to go there ourselves. Actors can go down to those places on our behalf, and um, we get to look. And, um, and when that show was, that, that translation was used in the performance of uh, the Antigone at Brooklyn Academy of Music at BAM some years ago, uh, we thank Juliette Benoche was, the, was Antigone, which was a strange choice in many ways and um they of course the actors put all the emotion back in and the consequence was the usual kind of melodrama that we associate with you know with productions of classical plays it was just you know the usual kind of working of the emotions and um you know if you if you want that then watch geico ads or something or watch 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 basketball that's fine nothing wrong with that i'm completely into that but Theatre is, you know, is is something else. And Anne Carson, um, I remember I had a conversation with her some years ago, um, and um, because my my approach is 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 tragedy against philosophy and against mm-hmm. our standard conceptions of morality. And um, at some point, we were talking about catharsis, and she said, "I've just got no idea what that word means." I said, "Nor have I," and and so, in a sense, the the movement against catharsis is also something I borrow from Anne Carson. The last thing that I think is um, I think is really important is that um, you know why does tragedy exist? Or, or no, no, what, what, no, in a pretty different way. Uh, tragedy is a strange art form. Uh, a strange thing. It's not even an art form, a strange thing. Uh, you know, what takes place in tragedy? Well, there is rage. Um, there's lots of rage, uh, that's for sure. And the rage um, flows from grief. So if we think again about Antigone, she is, to put it mildly, rather pissed off with the situation of her brother being um, not being allowed appropriate burial rights. And uh, she is angry, uh, and she's angry because of the the grief that she's feeling and the context out of which that rage and grief arise is a is a context of war. And so, one way of thinking about tragedy uh, with Anne Carson is around this this these three terms: uh, rage, grief, and war. That gets us closer to the phenomenon than uh, than kind of you know saccharine thoughts like catharsis, identification, and sympathy, it seems to me. So how is war portrayed in these tragedies? That's, that's one of the ways that I feel like tragedy has been kind of revisited lately is in the context of, you know, the United States has been at war now for 20 years and, and kind mm-hmm. of looking to see, you know, there's, there's a group called Theater of War that kind of started uh, doing, doing productions of Greek tragedies to kind of think through some, yes. of, the, some of the questions around, uh, around what does it mean to be a country at war? So, so yeah, so Brian how Durie's, is... Right? 
Yeah. So how yeah, no how is plan, war yeah. how is war portrayed in these plays? It's um, it's a good question. The um, I mean Brian Brian Dorries's work is 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 interesting, and uh, you know I've uh, enjoyed his productions I've seen over the years. Um, it's still too moralistic and sentimental. Um, it's not that we can just um, lift. Um, you know, Antigone say, and then it can be it can become Antigone and Ferguson. It's not it's not quite like that. It's not so. In a sense, there's a there's a problem with that kind of approach, um, and it's it's there's too much too much pathos in a way. And the and the, and the thing about theatre is that the pathos pathos has to be I don't know. Um, how would I put this without wanting to sound offensive? It's the it's the coldness, it's the coolness of of, of theatre, which is which forces us to reflect on our actual real condition, and not through and not to kind of wind us up into some kind of um, sentimental um, excitement where we where we we believe we're doing something, but actually we're doing nothing at all. So war is a very good example uh, of of uh, this, this whole set of questions that the, I mean, the first thing is that um, everybody would have known about war. Um, the cities, Athens was constantly at war and the cities around it were constantly at war, uh, usually with each other, if not with each other, with the, with the Persians, but, and there was nothing bad about war. Um, and there was nothing particularly good about war. War was just something that occurred. And the second thing, which I think is really interesting, is that the people that were the actors in these plays were uh, people that had experienced war. They were veterans. They weren't, you know, kind of um, woolly-minded, you know, performance studies majors at expensive colleges in New York. They were people that had involved, been involved in conflict and, um, and therefore their view of war, I think, is... Is different. It's both uh, more. It's more informed. It's more. Um, it's more subtle, and it's more. Again, it's quite. In a sense, it's cooler as well. Not sense cooler or cool, but cooler in the sense of which it's not so kind of wound up mm-hmm. by what's going on. So, it's the um, war is the the context out of which theatre emerges, and it's not clear what theatre's relationship to, to war. I mean, obviously the comforting view would be to the idea that, you know, theatre is anti-war. That's not clear, just as that's not clear in, you know, in, you know, you take any of the Shakespearean plays, just take Hamlet. Is that an anti-war play or a pro-war play? But there's war everywhere. And it's in that context of war and threats of war that ghosts appear and the whole drama uh, begins to unfurl. So in a sense, we have to... Um, you know, hang on to the um, yeah, hang on to the uh, the idea of war, and not sort of imagine that we can uh, that theatre is you know going to deliver deliver us towards peace because that's just not the case in relationship to the plays, uh, the Greek plays or more recent ones. Yeah, when Sorry, I think that of got rather no, no, that was, that I think that was great. Um, you know, that's something when I when I think about a play like Ajax, you know, that's not a play that I would describe necessarily anti-war, but it's maybe anti a kind of romanticized version of war, you know, the idea Absolutely. that it's that it's sweet to die for your country or something like that. That'd be very a very hard view to sustain, you know, through a production of, of a play like Ajax. Yeah, yeah, it's an it's it's against romanticizations of war, and um, that's very important. And also, it's I think the the lesson that I um, one lesson that I take from ancient Greek tragedy is the idea that the um, in the old as, as I said before the the Although this is a historical accident, the, the oldest play that we have, Persians by Aeschylus, um, 472 roughly, is um, all that happens in that play is that we see Persians uh, lamenting because they've been defeated. News of their defeat has um, got back to them. And then the drama, there's not very much drama in the play, really, but um, Xerxes returns the defeated 
general returns and the, uh, the ghost of Darius the Great, the great former leader of, of the Persians is summoned to admonish him and give a lesson to the Greeks. The point of the play, it would appear, is that um, it's not a victory dance by the Athenians, right? The Athenians are, uh, they don't exactly defeat the Persians. The Persians kind of give up. Uh, the Greeks are clearly, you know, not going to buckle under their, their pressures. The Greeks kind of, the, the Persians kind of give up. But for the Greeks, this is very important, but they depict, the Persians are depicted uh, with sympathy, I think, with as just people who are suffering like the way Greeks suffer. They dress differently. They speak differently. They have different names, but they're, they're people like we're people. So the idea, and also the, there's a wonderful um, moment when the ghost of Darius the Great um, appears and he says to Xerxes, his son, who's failed in his military campaign, not that the, he doesn't admonish him, admonish him for uh, defeat. He admonishes him for desecrating the altars of the Greeks, desecrating the altars of the Greeks. Um, this is in, uh, an impious act. So he, he, he criticizes his son for his impiety. And then he says, and this is the, the, the extraordinary moment in this play, Darius, the ghost of Darius the Great, um, addresses the audience. Obviously, an audience is watching this in 5th century Athens, addresses the audience and says to the Greeks, if you do anything like this, if you engage in acts of impiety, then you'll come to a similar end to, uh, to Xerxes. So there's this strange kind of um, address in a play like Persians around the question of war. But there's no... There's no idea that war is going to end or, or that it's, you know, um, or that it's doing anything. It's just what human beings do when human beings are in a competition for, for power, usually. Um, that's why the great kind of, um, the great documenter of war is Thucydides and uh, Thucydides accounts of the Peloponnesian War, which have direct correlation with a whole number of Greek plays. Yeah, that's a that's an extraordinary thing for a playwright to do to to depict the other side of a victorious war. Well, for us it is, but not for them. Um, and that says how, in a sense, how um, how little progress there's been in three millennia, <laughs> which is kind of the point. You know, it's the I think that the I mean the um, the the real riddle of of uh, of tragedy, uh, the real. Um, yeah, the real enigma of tragedy for me is uh, why it's still legible, why it still speaks to us, makes a claim on us, because it does. And, um, and how that claim is also similar to the claim that other kinds of theatre can make on us. Um, I don't see... So what people like to do at that point is they like to divide up history into neat historical bundles like antiquity and modernity and postmodernity and all of that. I'm, I have no interest in historical narratives in particular. Uh, the peculiar thing about theater and about tragedy is that it's as if uh, like a kind of a, a, a ghost, you know, once it's summoned, uh, it can take a, take on a very similar form and have a very similar kind of effect so for me to go from um sophocles to uh to shakespeare to uh ibsen to uh beckett or whatever is not a huge leap it's not as if tragedy dies the way some people um argued like george steiner in a very silly book a long time ago but the you know it's that tragedy is a it's a kind of art form that happens in in between times when a, a, a form of the world is kind of passing away and a new form of the world is coming into existence and somehow theatre is able to span those moments, like moments like, say, Elizabeth in London, and, uh, and, and, and speak to us. But that, but that can be revived. So I don't think that, to that extent, I'm uh, extraordinarily optimistic about theatre because theatre can, 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 you know, can wreak its... Havoc can cause its effects uh, in in a whole number of different circumstances. 
and and also it can take different forms. I think that there's no reason why it has to be restricted to what takes place in a in a theatre. Although that's very nice, and at this point in the pandemic, seems like a you know a crazy dream, doesn't it? But um, it can happen in movies too and other media. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. One of the kind of running themes in your book is that you really take issue with the way that philosophy has understood tragedy and not just particular philosophers, but kind of philosophy as a discipline. You seem to, I almost wonder if if it's kind of an an original sin in philosophy that it misunderstands tragedy so gravely. Could you talk a a bit about kind of what is the nature of that misunderstanding? What does philosophy get wrong and and why can't it seem to, you know, understand (sighs) tragedy in the way that, that you'd want it to? Well, I mean, it's, yeah, a good question. Um, And there has to be a slightly, uh, oh, slightly long answer. But, you know, there is reasons, again, that we don't, do not understand. Um, But it just is the case. It happened. Uh, Athens invented a few things. Um, It invented theatre in the way that we understand it, on the south slope of the Acropolis, the Theatre of Dionysus. And in that theatre, tragedies, comedies, satyr plays were were performed. Uh, Sometime later, although the the city Dionysia, which was the festival where the the plays were first produced, uh, was um, sponsored by a a tyrant, uh, Pisistratus. Uh, You know, the other thing that... Athens invents is this thing called democracy, uh, which emerges in the early years, the reformers of Cleisthenes, it takes on different forms, but there, there it is. So the fifth century BC, whatever we think about that period, there is, there is theater, particularly tragedy, and there's democracy. And there's some connection between those two things. Not that tragedy is democratic, I'm not saying that, but the two things are linked and they take place not very far from each other, which itself is, is very interesting that the theater is, you know, is a, I don't know, half a mile from the, you know, the, uh, the, the, the council and from the, uh, the Penix where democratic decisions were, were made. So philosophy and by philosophy, I mean, that that's a practice that, Plato calls philosophy, that's the term, we can say, well, philosophy has always existed, there have always been people with philosophical views, that's, that's fine and that's true, but philosophia as a term is introduced by Plato or Plato's, the people that are writing these thoughts down, almost certainly not Plato, but the, um, and, and Plato using the, um, well, a number of things to say, a firstly platonic dialogue, Socratic dialogue is is drama. It's a form of drama in, in itself, the form of a dramatized uh, dialogue between Socrates often and uh, some interlocutors. Uh, secondly, it is philosophy is uh, consistently, persistently anti-democratic, right? As well as being anti, um, as well as being misogynistic uh, in, in different ways. But it's, it's anti-democratic. Democracy is uh, singled out for um, withering critique in Plato's Republic, and um, and the argument being that democracy is looks nice. It looks you know nicely coloured, as the word that uh, Plato uses, a, a many-coloured and kind of fair garment. But it leads to the emergence of tyranny. Tyrants are what democracy produces. And, um, and then the argument is that theater and tragedy in particular is really in, in cahoots with, with, uh, with tyranny and with the bad elements, the bad populist elements of, uh, of, of democracy. And that's why in, um, 
in the kind of city that Plato tries to imagine in the well, in the mouth of Socrates in Republic, in that in that city, uh, there can be no there can be no theatre, there can be no tragedy, um, and the reasons for that then get really really quite quite detailed, and it's about the amount of emotion that tragedy. Um, seems to seems to yield seems to pull up in people in particular the emotion of of grief and lamentation plato is dead set against that that's bad so the invention of philosophy is done at the expense of democracy and at the expense of theater and uh we have to have to get in order for this new form of uh this new form of drama to appear socratic dialogue the old form of drama has to be not just uh, not just killed; it has to be excluded from the um, from the minds of the people that will end up governing the city. The guardians uh, they should not be allowed to uh, visit theatre. And this is this is a, a, an issue which rumbles down through the centuries. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, think about Rousseau's argument uh, against Voltaire in the seventeen fifties, sixties about whether there should be a theatre in Geneva. Um, and Rousseau says, no, <laughs> once you've got a theatre, you've got representation. Once you've got representation, people begin to, you know, they get too wound up, too excited by this drama and they're lost. And so there's a, there's a very, very strong anti-theatrical tradition in philosophy, which is, um, uh, which I'm trying to kind of um, show and then very strongly argue against by saying that we need to, if, if we're actually interested in, if we're interested in the deep searching questions about who we are, what we are, um, and things like that, when, then we uh, we would do much better uh, going to theatre than studying philosophy. <laughs> and of course, and of course, the other part of that is that the you know I'm you know I'm someone that has spent their career teaching in philosophy departments, so there's also a that's kind of extra, extra spice in this for me. I think that the way philosophers talk about artworks in general and theatre in particular is, um, is to say, uh, say the least challenged and needs to be, uh, needs to be deeper and richer and uh, more informed with more examples. Do you think it's possible to extend that criticism further beyond art and say that philosophy tends to be a sort of categorizing reductive discipline in general that pays too little attention to the particulars of the thing it's actually pretending to study. Yes. Yes. And I think, and, and if it were only philosophy, that would be fine. I mean, who cares? You've got you know, <laughs> a bunch of, you know, um, overeducated people teaching uh, books that very few people have read. I mean, you know, why does it matter? But the, um, the point is deeper than that in the sense in which philosophy here, what is philosophy? Um, and this is where I, uh, in the book, it's not addressed directly, but um, I've got Nietzsche on my mind. I've got Nietzsche is a, you know, a very complex figure for me. There's a, there's a Nietzsche that I very much like and a Nietzsche that I think is wildly, uh, wildly wrong. But the, the Nietzsche that I really like talks about the prejudices of the philosophers and the prejudices of the philosophers uh, can be reduced to really two: the idea that with the use of the intellect or reason, we can peer into the nature of that, which is right. There's the, with the mind, we can find out that which is uh, that's what philosophers would call ontology, right? An account of being. Uh, and on that basis of what is, uh, the second prejudice would be that they can, philosophers can offer certain moral injunctions. It can, they can tell you what you ought to do, what is good and what is bad in relationship to what is. And those two prejudices are for Nietzsche laughable. And, um, and if it were just philosophers, well, who cares? But the thing is, the world is full of people who think they know what is, and they think the mind can peer into the nature of existence, you know, substance, nature, whatever it might be. And on that basis, uh, give uh, nice moral instructions, do this, do, don't do that. Or doing this will lead to 
justice. Uh, doing that will lead to injustice. Now, whatever is going on in, 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 uh, in classical tragedy and in modern tragedy, whatever is going on is not that. We're not presented with a settled account of what is and with a settled account of what we should do. Uh, for me, it's exactly the opposite. The extraordinary thing about, um, about Greek tragedies is that there is deep uncertainty about the nature of uh, existence. Um, it could be these gods. It could be that gods. It could be this way of doing things. It could be that way of doing things. Maybe the Egyptians are right. Maybe the Persians are right. We don't know. It's, it's, it's play, and it plays out in the plays as conflict, as, um, as, 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 um, as discursive conflict and arguments. And, the, and also the nature of, of uh, morality and moral action is also deeply ambiguous in, in these plays. So uh, one thing that I try and argue in the, um, in the book um, is that what defines tragedy is moral ambiguity and a division around uh, the nature of the good and the bad. And if we, if we began to approach the world in those terms, then we'd be in a very different place, it seems to me. So it's not that philosophy gets things, uh, get thing, gets things, gets things, um, gets things wrong. It, 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 it plays out these prejudices. It's rather that <laughs> whole human societies do exactly the same thing. And so people think they know what, what is the case uh, and what justice is and what they should do. And um, what you see in a play is someone who um, is destroyed by such beliefs, usually. Mm -hmm. Oedipus is very clear about <laughs> what is the case and what he should do and who he is. And uh, we see him destroyed. That's what tragedy does. It shows people devastated by the, um, by the certainties which they previously had. I think that's the power of theater, right? For me. Yeah. One of, I think one of the kind of related misunderstandings that people often have, and it's either, you know, whether they think it's an Aristotle or not, I think is less relevant, but the, just the idea that what a tragedy does shows you a character that has some flaw and then the flaw destroys them. And then the audience says, well, okay, I'll try not to have that flaw and maybe I'll make it out alive, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm which I, I gather is another sort of uh, wildly simplistic understanding of tragedy that, that you take issue with. Could you talk a bit about why that common idea of the tragic flaw is so mistaken? It's, um, yeah, it's not a flaw. It's that there is, I think it's more that there's a, a, an idea of limitedness, an idea of limitedness, which for me is hugely important. The idea that human beings are unlimited, have un, unlimited potential, unlimited capacity for growth for this or that is a terrible ideological lie. We are creatures who are uh, weak, wretched, uh, limited and to that, to that extent, you know, flawed. And, and what we see on stage is, is that, right. Uh, and we're not, and we're not shown that in order to correct it. We're shown how that plays out and it's not clear why? I mean, so a thing I mentioned maybe a little bit earlier, but <clears throat> it's quite dear to me is, is the, the idea that, that we have that, um, you know, theatre is good because it educates people. And this is what was going on with Greek, uh, Greek drama. It educated the citizens. There's absolutely no evidence for that. Um, it's, it's rather the case that the people that would have gone to see these plays were already educated. They knew what was what. So what they were looking at in the plays was, was something else, some kind of, um, kind of almost exaggerated kind of night view of their situation played out dramatically for the purposes of pleasure, right? We should never forget that. This is, this is meant to arouse pleasure. And there is a pleasure in feeling pity and terror, right? So if um, tragedy is... Um, as Aristotle says, if tragedy is arousing these, these emotions, then we kind of enjoy that, but we don't enjoy it for a purpose. We enjoy it as it were, as an activity in and of itself. And this, 
this can lead us to a kind of a more honest idea of uh, what's going on in, in tragedy. I mean, you know, the, 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 there, is, there is a belief, right? And coming from where I come from originally, that, uh, you know, like, like Guinness, uh, Shakespeare is good for you, right? Um, it's just not clear to me what that means. It's not, it's not good for you in the sense in which the more Shakespeare you read, the better person you will be. It's not that simple, right? The, the lessons that, if, if indeed there are lessons, the things that are going on in these plays are, are just much more complex. And also the fact that we take pleasure, that we will watch someone be destroyed or destroy themselves, um, and we look at that coldly, coolly, is um, in a sense a strange and alarming thing to do. And I want what I want is, I mean, I don't know, in terms of theatrical, um, I don't know what the best way of putting this, but the, I mean, what I'm thinking of in this book, uh, I remember giving a presentation years ago somewhere, and uh, it was in Boston, I think, and um, someone said, well, what you're arguing for is epic theatre in Brecht, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I had that thought as well. <laughs> right. And, and I said, uh, yes, no, I don't, I'm not sh quite sure what you mean. I need to go back and look at that again. But, uh, but indeed, that's, that's right. I mean, epic theatre in, in Brecht, I mean, the idea that he has, you know, after the First World War and in the 20s, in a sense, before we get the really political Brecht, um, is an idea of theatre that is, um, that shakes up the audience's expectations kind of gets them to try and wake up, right? The, I think there's a kind of tendency that we have as theater goers to kind of fall asleep in the theater, to switch off. Even if we're not asleep, we've kind of switched off. Um, mm. And what Brecht wanted was a theater of intelligence uh, and a theater where the, the spectator would be, um, uh, the spectator would be a kind of observer um, with what was going on in stage, on, on stage, and where you know any kind of smooth narrative flows in the drama would become interrupted, kind of broken. So, I think of uh, Brecht as Brecht's theatre of the twenties as a kind of almost like a theatre of of fits and starts and sort of jump shots. And, um, and if, you, if you think about that in relationship to, say, Euripides, who's, who's kind of the hero of the book, Euripides is the guy for me. Aeschylus and Sophocles, very nice, in, very nice indeed. But Euripides is really um, where it's at because Euripides is taking the previous forms of drama, Aeschylus and Sophocles, and ridiculing them. It's a kind of meta-theater in... Um, in Euripides, but the idea of epic theatre as a theatre which calls for and requires intelligence, uh, which doesn't lead to a kind of simple uh, catharsis, that is where the human situation is examined in a full kind of unforgiving, naked light is really what I think is going on in, um, in Greek tragedies. And therefore, you can, I think you can put, you know, without wanting to sound ridiculously arrogant, but this is still going to sound ridiculously arrogant. I mean, I'd, I'd like to put myself in a tradition of thinking about theatre that uh, you can find in people like Peter Brook, uh, mm -hmm. The Empty Space, uh, you know, some of the uh, remarks that Grotowski made and then in, you know, in, in theatre groups and in, in my personal favourite because they're, they're local and I've been watching them for a long time at the Worcester group mm -hmm. and what the Worcester group do with um, uh, a classical drama like Hamlet or uh, uh, Troilus and Cressida is the kind of thing that I want to happen with theatre. That's what's, that's what's going on. And it's, um, and it's, and it's not that that is um, timeless. It's not that that's, that's, that's silly, but that, that still can occur. When that occurs, it can occur, and it, it's not—it's—it's it's not tied to a specific place and time. It's something which is remarkably robust and translatable. We can. So, 
to that extent, I'm an optimist about theatre. And also I think that the that what's what's going on in um um this is yeah, this is maybe maybe this is helpful for uh your auditors would be um the um let me try and get this right because it's it's been some years since I wrote this book and uh my mind and, it, and my mind's been occupied with other things, as is often the case. But I remember um there's a story I tell at the end of the book, and I was doing this um uh this event at BAM, Brooklyn Academy of Music, with Isabelle Huppert. And it was around a production of uh a play called Phaedra's, right? This, uh, which was basically taking all these different versions of the same play from um, Euripides, Seneca, Racine, and Sarah Kane, and kind of melding them into some new form. Itself, really interesting. And and uh, I I I had a talk with a you know public talk with her. And I was a bit nervous. Actually, I was a bit ill that day. I remember I was pretty feeling pretty pretty sick. I kept asking questions and, you know, she was being quite polite. And then she said something like, um, you know, um, you know, these are, these are ideas you've got. They're, they're maybe good ideas, but they're just ideas. Uh, and she said, what theatre is about is aliveness. It's mm. a certain experience of aliveness. And that's really what I want to, to, to kind of, you know, to hammer home that there's, there's something that takes place it doesn't only take place in theatre, but it does take place in theatre when it happens, where you are held out. You are held out, kind of ecstatically held there, watching something on stage, which is usually awful, right? It's usually awful what's happening on stage. And you're held there, and for that, that period of time, your, your moral views of the world, your sense of who you are, what's right, what's wrong, all of that is suspended. It's just put to one side and you're held there and you watch something. And that, that what you're watching there can be thought of as an idea of aliveness. But of course, that aliveness is also shot through with mortality and with deathness as, 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 as well. So I mean, going back to Ann Carson, um, there's a yeah. This this might be a way of kind of you know putting a couple of things together because as I'm speaking to you, as you're remembering what it was I was saying in the book, it's it's coming <laughs> it's coming back to me now. It's the um, in that conversation I had with Anne Carson about catharsis, and I said, and she said, well, I don't know what it means. I said, well, I don't. People 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 seem but people seem very fond of it. Um, she said something like this. Um, story that uh, it's like walking down a road in Detroit. So you have to imagine Anne Carson walking down a road in Detroit. I mean, she was teaching at the University of Michigan for a long time. Hard to imagine, but let's imagine walking down a road in Detroit, wasted to turn the story. And, and then she realizes that she's walking past a foundry where they are, there's molten metal which is being forged in the, you know, made in the foundry, molten metal in the foundry. And she, as she's walking down the road, she looks to the left and sees this foundry and sees this, this fiery molten core. And then she turns back to the road and carries on walking. Mm. She says, that's what theatre is like. For a, for a moment, for a moment, if you're lucky, you get to see that burning core, that burning core of, aliveness and other stuff and you can be and you can hold it there for a second what we take from that uh what that means is a you know uh is a topic to be debated but the philosophers got all that wrong i think <laughs> <laughs> roughly and readily wonderful i think that's a that's a great moment to end our discussion of tragedy i just want to give you a moment because you you mentioned this book is a, a few years old now it came out yeah. in 2019 and i understand you have a new book out is it this week yeah funnily enough funnily <laughs> enough yeah it's so, uh can I you wrote... uh, tell us a bit about that book yes well so so the tragedy book is really just to say what well, that was i mean it's the fruit i mean books always taken you know, several lifetimes to write. So I've been thinking about 
theatre since I was, you know, since I was a student and I'm not exactly from a theatrical background. So this has kind of been 30 years of kind of pondering the nature of theatre and tragedy and my mind has changed a lot. So although it's, um, you know, it feels old, it's, it's still very much, very much there with me. And, and, um, and I want to, for me, something absolutely powerful and unique happens in theatrical experience. And it's uh, impossible to explain what that thing is really, but that's what sometimes happens. And often it doesn't because the, because the, theatre can be really, really bad, as we know. Anyway, but the, the new book I've got is called Bald, and or I guess Bald would be would be closer here. And it's uh, thirty-five philosophical shortcuts. It's all the pieces I've written for the New York Times in the last twelve years, and it's a kind of way of tying all that work up into a neat bow and pushing it out there with a little simple, silly frame, which is about sticking your head out in public. So it's an idea of uh, boldness as a, as a, because it is funny when you're bald that people feel they can say, they, they can point it out, right? Whereas if you pointed out other aspects of way somebody looked, their weight or their ethnicity, you know, you'd be looked at askance, but boldness is up for grabs. But I'm, I do, I'm just using that, using that as a pretext for the way I've been trying to write for the New York Times for a number of years, which is in a, in a bald, jargon-free, straightforward way, which means sticking your head out of the window. And of course, when you stick your head out the window, then, you know, there are birds circling overhead and they're going to drop some unpleasantness on your head. But that's the way it is. And um, yes, that came out this week. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for being on New Books and Performing Art, uh, Simon Critchley. I, I really enjoyed the book and I really enjoyed getting to talk with you about it. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure.